Welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. Now, ordinarily, we would have the guys from Powderhorn Guns and Archery on the program this morning, but the guys that usually come on, they're out in the woods hunting for Bambi. And, um, Brian, I'm thinking it'd be nice if they brought us back some venison. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to hold down the fort for them. The least they could do is bring us back some venison. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you'll cook it. Uh, no, I don't think uh, you want my cooking. <laughs> well, yeah, you're a culinary wizard. Uh -huh. You can invite me over for dinner. I might even bring Gwen. <laughs> anyway, listen, we got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but it's going to be a little bit different today than it normally is. Um, I went around. There, there are experts that I, uh, that I uh, have been following, and I thought I would share some of their... Uh, some of their talent with you. Uh, the first one is an attorney, and it's Washington Gun Guru. And he, we're going to talk about, well, he's going to talk about, what if you're in your car and you get surrounded by a mob? You know, your first instinct might be to just step on the gas and mow them over, but you got to be careful. So let's find out what you should do. Okay, so here's what we're talking about today. A scenario where you're just driving along, minding your own business, and the next thing you know, you have driven near or accidentally into a protest, and you are now surrounded by an angry mob. How could that ever happen, you say? Well, if you go back in our time machine to the summer of 2021, anywhere in Seattle or Portland, it could happen at any moment. You could literally be driving right by the downtown Nordstrom's in downtown Seattle, hang a left on Pine Street and suddenly, oh my God, you're in the middle of an Antifa uh, rally. This is a real, true, honest scenario. And as we know, it's been happening because in the exercise of everyone's First Amendment uh, rights, we have a group of individuals throughout the nation, mostly college students, by the way, who want to go out and support a terrorist organization such as Hamas. What can you do if, God forbid, you are in your car, which is suddenly surrounded by an angry mob? Before we can get to the answers, let's get the basic ground rules down. Now, I'm going to use Washington law because this is Washington gun law, and it's the one I know off the top of my head. I have geeked out on self-defense laws all around the nation. And with a few exceptions, this is going to be generally consistent with what occurs in your state. However, and the caveat I always give is please consult with local counsel because every local law could have a nuance that could change the factual scenario. Now, here we go. What we know, self-defense in general, okay, is that we can use force to defend ourselves so long as the force we use is necessary reasonable, both objectively and subjectively, and proportional. We also know that we cannot use lethal force unless, one, you are in imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. Two, someone else in your presence is in imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. Three, a felony is being committed upon your person. Or four, a felony is being committed inside your home. Since we're not going to be talking about using a firearm or anything like this, we are talking about driving away, but arguably and possibly driving into or over individuals. So we need to define what is considered deadly force. In most jurisdictions, deadly force is defined as deadly force means the intentional application of force through the use of firearms or any other means reasonably likely to cause death or serious physical injury. 
Okay, so like I've always taught before, anytime we're using a firearm, that will always be analyzed under the use of deadly force. There are other inanimate objects, however, not designed to be deadly weapons, but if used that way, are very effective. The kitchen knife, the baseball bat, and yes, the automobile. And so what we need to understand is if we are surrounded by an angry mob and we decide to just step on the gas and get out of there, any reasonable person would understand that that could result in serious physical injury or death to other people. So knowing that that may be the case, when, if ever, can it be lawfully justified? Okay. So now that we got the general rules of self-defense, now that we got the general rules of when we get to use lethal force, now that we understand what lethal force is, let us also remember that when it comes to defense of property and property only, we are normally, with a very few exceptions, we are normally not permitted to use lethal force to defend only property. And the reason, of course, is, is that if you go back and look at the four ways in which you can typically use lethal force, it requires that a human being be in imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. So even though you may want to shoot the people who are beating the hell out of your car, you probably do not have the right to do so. So... Here's the general rule here, okay? If you get surrounded by an angry mob and they're just pounding on the car and nothing more, are they damaging the car? They most definitely are. Do you have the right to use reasonable force to defend your property? Yes, you do. Would be getting out of the car part of that reasonable force? I think that, honestly, if you talk to the tactical people, they'll tell you that's the worst thing you could do. You are stepping into an angry mob where you are clearly outnumbered. Could you drive forward in a slow, methodical manner, understanding that that may cause infliction of greater damage to the car, but could you drive in a slower manner, thus no way endangering anyone from being run over until you were in a safe location? Yes, that would be not only an attempt to retreat, which you are under no duty to retreat in most states. Again, check with your local jurisdictions because some states actually do require you to retreat. But if you're in an automobile, there's really only one way to retreat and that's actually to drive away. So if we're just talking about pounding on the car, we cannot be using lethal force because we are only defending property. Now, when the windows start getting smashed out, we're getting to a different point now. Because now we got glass flying and we obviously have objects that are flying in through the windshields in order to break them, okay? This does begin to create a significant risk of death or certainly serious bodily injury. And anyone who's ever known who's gotten glass in their eyes or anything like that, that can result in significant and permanent injury. At this point, at this point now, also another argument could be made that, hey, if they're smashing out the windows, what's next? They're going to probably try to reach in and get me. So at this point, driving away in a more rapid fashion could be legally justified, again, based upon your jurisdiction. Now, if we've gotten through, the car's been smashed on, the windows have been smashed out, and they're reaching in the car to pull you out of the car, that's a whole different story, okay? All bets are off at that point, okay? You absolutely are an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury, and you are absolutely having a felony committed upon your person. It is a carjacking, it is a robbery, it is a felony assault, it's probably all of the above. And let us remember that if there are other individuals in the car, passengers, children, whoever, okay, then you have other people in your presence which are also now in imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. 
But this is where it's going to get a little trickier for you. And this is why there is that old adage, it's better to be judged by 12 than carried by six. And there may be some truth to it. But understand this, a jury's going to have to find that your use of force was reasonable both subjectively and objectively. And let me explain the difference. Subjectively, a jury's going to be told, hey, just put yourself in that driver's shoes. Know what they know, see what they see, hear what they hear. Would you have done the same thing? If the answer is yes, they also have to determine, however, that the use of force was objectively reasonable. That is, we as a society are willing to accept that. So in certain jurisdictions, depending on the makeup of your jury, even if they subjectively believe that you have the right to use force, they may not be big fans of you plowing over protesters that might be of a similar political leaning. Moral of the story is, if it's only the car that's being pounded on, you cannot use lethal force. If the windows start getting smashed out, we're probably getting to a point where you may need to. And if they're reaching and trying to pull you or any other occupant of the vehicle out, at that point, yeah, all bets are off. You need to start saving your life and anyone else's in your vehicle. And, okay, so... And that is uh, some pretty sound advice. I, I, I've often seen these uh, crowds gathering around cars. They're blocking traffic. And I thought this might be something that uh, would perhaps protect your, or at least give you the information you need to protect yourself in the event you're in that case. And we're seeing this now all over the place. It was Antifa and Black Lives Matter, and now it's the uh, people supporting uh, radical Islam. Uh, they're blocking roads and things. So some solid information on what to do to protect yourself. Coming up, uh, the pistol brace. The uh, the pistol, pistol brace rule is dead. So we'll come back and chat about that. On Gary on Guns. Welcome, it is Gary on Guns. The ATF pistol brace rule is dead. Uh, a little history on this, and I'll tell you, we're going to go to Colin Noir. Uh, you can find him on YouTube. He's a great resource. Uh, he's going to talk about this, and I'm going to just jump right in because I want to get this done uh, and and keep our timing somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of where it should be. We'll chat about all of this uh, in another segment. So here's Colin Noir, and it is the ATF pistol brace rule. The history and its death. Oh, boy. <laughs> Breaking news. The ATF brace rule is dead. And now you all can go back to putting all the sweet SB tactical braces on your AR and AK pistols without worrying if you're breaking the law or having to pay a $200 tax and waiting for three months. Kind of. But first, let's take a quick trip down memory lane. In 2012, Alex Bosco invented the pistol brace to help a disabled veteran shoot his AR better. He sent the design to the ATF to ask if the brace turned the gun into an SBR. The ATF examined it and said, nah. You're good. After this, pistol braces became very popular, not only with people who were disabled, but also with people who weren't disabled. Because putting a traditional stock on a gun with a barrel less than 16 inches, as was required by the ATF, also required that you had to register it with the ATF, pay a $200 tax, and then wait three months for an approval. Or if you didn't do those things, you'd go to jail. Now, people quickly realized that the braces did a decent job of making the AR and AK pistols usable enough compared to dealing with the red tape of using a traditional stock, even if it was much better than using a brace. Now, the ATF saw this and they didn't like this, but they already said that the braces were okay. So 
They tried to finesse the language of the rule a little bit. They did this song and dance for over five years, but nothing stuck because, you see, the ATF can't make laws. They can only make rules. So they had to be crafty about how they tried to change the language of the rule so that it didn't have the effect of a law. Now, the ATF started feeling some type of way now that gun companies were now selling AR and AK pistols with braces on them instead of selling them as pistols. And then the consumer puts a brace on them of their choosing. Doing what government agencies do when they can't win by playing by the rules, they just flip the board over and don't play by the rules. And on January 31st, 2023, the ATF published a new rule saying that all those guns out there with pistol braces on them will now be classified as SBRs. And anyone that has a gun with a brace on it has 120 days to either destroy it or pay a $200 tax and register it with the ATF or go to jail. Keep in mind, at this point, there were millions of people with pistol braces on their guns. Now, in response to this rule, the Firearm Policy Coalition, Maxim Defense, William Mock, and Christopher Lewis brought a suit challenging the rule. When the case got to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, they basically said the ATF went too far and sent the case back to Judge Reed O'Connor. Judge Reed O'Connor issued a preliminary injunction, i.e. ATF can't enforce this law, except it only applied to the members of the Firearm Policy Coalition, the Maxim Defense owners, and William Mock and Christopher Lewis. So. All those people were protected, but everyone else was out of luck. That was until Wednesday when Judge Caxmark, whose name I can't seem to pronounce, took it even further in the Brito v. ATF case where he said this. The court is certainly sympathetic to ATF's concern over public safety in the wake of tragic mass shootings. The rule embodies salutary policy goals meant to protect vulnerable people in our society, but public safety concerns must be addressed in ways that are lawful. This rule is not. For the foregoing reasons, the court grants the motion and stays the rule in its entirety. Long story short, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course you're claiming this rule is about safety. And I want people to be safe too. But just because you say a rule is for safety doesn't mean it's not unlawful. And because this rule is unlawful, you can't enforce it on anyone in the United States. So there you have it. Now you can buy all the AR and AK pistols you want and put whatever brace you want on them and you don't have to register them with the ATF. However, if you were one of those poor souls that registered your gun during the 120 day period, those guns are now officially considered SBRs, which means you can put a stock on them, but now you can't cross state lines with it unless you get permission from the ATF. I personally think the ATF knew they wouldn't win this and gave the 120 day period as a sneaky way to scare people to get them to register their guns before the court ruled against their rule. And to some degree, it worked as there were about 255,000 people that did register their brace gun. Now, the ATF could appeal this decision, but if they did, they'd be appealing it to the same court who said the rule is unlawful and sent it back down to the lower courts. So I highly doubt that the same court is then going to do an about face and now say that the rule is lawful. But I've seen crazier things in the past few years, like Biden as president. So there's that. Now, before you all start running off to go buy all your AR and AK pistols and all the braces that you want, make sure you head over to shop.mrcoleonnoir.com because we just released our new premium grade embroidered hoodies. Like this design here with the blacked out AK, which is my personal favorite. But we also have them in all of the other designs that we've had in the past. Except this time, they're all embroidered, as you can see, 
Mm-hmm. It's nice. It's sexy, ain't it? Yeah, I think so, too. So, head over to shop.mrcoleonnoir.com and check out all of our new designs. Check out our new premium-grade hoodies with the embroidery. And uh, make sure you uh, click, like, and subscribe. And also leave a comment letting us know what you think of the law. And also leave a comment telling us what brace gun are you going to buy next. Because There you go. It is uh, Colin Noir. And if you're uh, interested in his uh, hoodie, I let him I let him uh, uh, do the ad because uh, I think his content is great and I want him to profit from it. Uh, but the, the pistol brace rule is dead, D-E-D, dead. Uh, and it's about time. It was it was it's silly. The I truth guess is I'm confused because uh, could an individual put a belt on, uh, you know, use that as a pistol brace and be, a, you know, breaking the law? Well. Could they have? Well, a belt wouldn't um, wouldn't suffice. It wouldn't do the job. Uh, this is a solid piece that uh, is velcro. Looks like a strap. When I looked at one, well, it's it's it's, it's a solid piece and uh, it's velcroed around your wrist and your forearm, so that if you for some reason can't use both hands, the gun is stable and you can uh, you can shoot more accurately. Uh, the idea I mean, that you could, you could build something like that yourself. How could yeah, they control and, that? Well, if they, uh, see, you know, if well, first they they can't right now uh, because the whole pistol brace. Right. If you if you duplicate it, you make a a, a homemade pistol uh, brace. You're uh, theoretically, I, I would imagine, allowed to do that. But uh, if this law were in place, you'd have had to register it. And the irony is, for those poor people who went ahead and registered their, their pistol brace, <laughs> they are now unable to carry those firearms across state lines. How pathetic when the law has been rejected for the, stupid, uh, for the stupidity involved in it uh, right from the get-go. But this is, this is good news. And I, I think as we move along with the Bruin decision, a lot of these rules are going to go away. Frankly, they should all go away. The Second Amendment is clear that we should be able to have whatever firearm we choose, whatever weapon we decide to have. Oh, they were talking about muskets, though, Gary. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, the printing press, can we, you know, uh, <laughs> can we say uh, you don't have freedom of the press unless you're using an old-fashioned printing press? Of course not. It's a silly argument that they use. So this is good news. Anyway, I think that as the Bruin decision um, is applied, more and more of these gun laws are going to disappear. So on uh, Gary on Guns today, we're going over some of the people that I respect that I think are uh, well worth following uh, when it comes to uh, firearms and firearms laws. So if, uh, if you're uh, interested, go and follow them too. In the meantime, uh, we're going to come up with uh, some things, six things... You do that gets you arrested after a self-defense shooting. Could even get you killed. That's next on Gary on Guns. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. Uh, it is normally uh, Powderhorn Guns and Archery that would be with us this uh, for this program. However, uh, they're out in the woods hunting for deer and uh, bringing Brian and, and bringing me uh, some uh, venison, I'm sure. Um, I, no doubt that that's what they're going to do. I'm sure they will. <laughs> The store is open, uh, but the guys that normally come on the program, uh, they are, in fact, out hunting. Uh, but I, I want to move on. Uh, we've been playing some audio uh, from people that I follow 
it, and the, the ethical uh, ethical preparedness is uh, coming up next. This is uh, former law enforcement, and it's it's some really great advice. This is something that none of us ever want to encounter. We never want to pull that firearm out and shoot somebody. I know the people on the left all think we want to, but we know better. We know that the consequences are dire and can be expensive, can ruin your family. But it may happen. And here's some tips, six things you do that could get you arrested after a self-defense shooting. Folks, self-defense shootings can many times be chaotic scenes that could result in you accidentally getting killed by the responding police or also getting wrongfully arrested for defending yourself. So watch this video to save your butt a second time after you just saved your butt the first time from that violent criminal. So stay tuned to learn what 90% of the general public out there doesn't know. Freedom seeds for everyone! <laughs> That's just fun. Be. So folks, as a 20-year police veteran and then also somebody that's been unfortunately involved in a self-defense police action shooting myself, unfortunately I've got personal experience in this subject matter. So my hope with this video is that you as the viewer can learn more about what happens to you both physically and mentally and legally after a self-defense shooting so that this will help better prepare you for when that moment of truth comes. So folks, here is tip number one for if you are ever forced to have to shoot a bad guy in self-defense. And tip number one is to not, absolutely do not, if you can at all possible, do not still have your firearm in your hand for when the police arrive. When the police get dispatched on things, they many times get very little information when they get dispatched. So when they arrive, they're not gonna have very much information other than just a person shot. They're not gonna know if you're the good guy or the bad guy or what have you. People have a tendency to scream over the phone to dispatchers. Dispatchers don't get all the information. They don't broadcast it correctly over to the police. So when the police arrive, Anybody that has a gun that's not in uniform will be a threat to the police because the police know that's all it takes. So do not have your gun in your hands when the police arrive. Even us police officers are taught that if we are off duty and if we are not in uniform, do not have our guns in our hands when the uniform cops arrive. Again, because that is all it takes. So anybody with a gun in their hand in actuality anybody with a gun in reach that's not in uniform will be considered a threat to the police now if i were involved in a, another shooting and i was near my car i would probably put my gun in my glove box in my car if i could safely do so before the police arrived if i was at home probably stick it in a nearby drawer again if i can safely do so but i would just try my best to not have my gun in my hand when the police arrive. The simple fact is you would hate to save your life from a bad guy just to get killed by the cops when they arrive because they don't know what's going on and you appear, even for a split second, to be a deadly threat to them. And here is tip number two of things never to do after you've been forced to shoot a bad guy in self-defense and that is don't scream over the phone when you call 911. Again, screams are 
not easily understood by dispatchers. So if you're screaming, oh my gosh, I just shot somebody, the dispatcher may not be correctly understanding you or what's going on. And when the dispatcher doesn't understand you correctly, then they relay bad information over the radio waves to the cops that's going to be responding. So the more information that you can calmly give to the dispatcher, then she can relay that information to the responding police. I've just been forced to shoot somebody in self-defense. I am wearing a dark gray long-sleeved t-shirt and green pants. I am at the Safeway grocery store parking lot located at whatever intersection. Again, I was forced to shoot a bad guy in self-defense that tried to rob me. Please start uh, help and start medics. Now, as soon as you hang up from 911, the next thing you need to do is to call like firearms legal protection, who will have an attorney that will answer and you say, hey, I just got involved in a uh, self-defense shooting. Here's what happened. The police are on their way and they're gonna tell you exactly what to say or do with the police as they respond. And then if you get arrested for defending yourself, firearms legal protection will start working to get you bonded out. And then if your case goes to trial, because you defended yourself, then firearms legal protection will provide you with free expert self-defense attorneys that will fight on your behalf in court. They will provide a free expert self-defense attorney that would normally cost thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to help hand a defeat to that local prosecutor that's trying to put you into prison for the rest of your life. If you're interested in checking out the Firearms Legal Protection, I will put a, an affiliate link down below so you can check them out if you want to. And here is tip number three of what never to do after you've been forced to shoot a bad guy in self-defense, and that is to make a detailed statement to the responding police. You never want to make a detailed statement to the police until after you've had at least two nights of sleep. Not just two nights, but two nights of sleep. Now, when the police respond to your self-defense shooting scene, they are going to have a lot of technical questions because they are going to have to recreate that scene. They're going to have to thoroughly investigate that scene because there's a dead human there. And don't sweat it that they're going to ask you these technical questions because even when us police get involved in a police action shooting, the other responding cops all show up and want to ask us <laughs> what happened and, and exactly what happened. It's just natural on a big incident like that People want to know exactly what occurred in that time, immediately after a self-defense shooting, that time is not when you want to be answering technical questions because you will be in a hyper state. You will have adrenaline will be screaming through your body. You'll have, simply put, if you try to answer too many questions after a self-defense shooting in that excited state that you're going to be in, that you're going to have too big of a chance that you will say something that can be, you can say something that's innocent, but it can be e so easily misconstrued later in court. So my simple advice is what I believe is the best thing to say after you've been involved in a self-defense shooting and the police arrive and they ask you what happened is a simple statement of that gentleman pulled a knife on me. I was in fear for my life, so I defended myself. Now, I don't want to make 
I don't want to answer any more questions until I have my attorney present with me and now I don't feel good and I wish to be taken to the hospital. Now I don't want to get too deep into that because that deserves its own video itself of what to say to the police when they arrive and your firearms legal protection attorney will actually know this and they will actually when you as soon as you get involved in that shooting and you call them the 24-hour hotline they will tell you exactly what to say what to expect and then they also won't will not let you talk to the police to give that detailed statement even if you decide that you guys are even going to do it but they are going to know the scientific reasons behind you not giving a more detailed statement until at least 72 hours or after two nights of sleep after the incident. And here is tip number four of things never to do or to do after you've been involved in a self-defense shooting. And that tip number four is don't treat the police as your friend, but at the same time, don't treat them as your enemy. Just be respectful. Give them that brief statement that I mentioned in tip number three, I think it was, and then just get with your firearms legal protection attorney as soon as you possibly can after that shooting. If you watch my channel long enough, you know, you've seen the proof that I've given you that most cops across the United States, the vast majority of cops across the United States are pro second amendment and pro good guy defending himself against a bad guy with a gun. But you never know when you do run, run into that one cop that doesn't like guns, that doesn't like self-defenders, and may view you as a vigilante for protecting yourself against a violent bad guy rather than the good self-defender that you are. And here's tip number five, which is never leave the scene after you've been forced to shoot a bad guy in self-defense. Folks, every time I do some type of a self-defense type video, inevitably there's always somebody that, that, that makes the comment of, if I have to shoot a bad guy in self-defense, I'm just getting the heck out of there so I don't have to deal with the legal hassle. Folks, this is horrible advice if you ever hear it. Folks, in today's world, it's almost impossible to be someplace and leave that area without it being known without being found out that you were there. Your cell phones, just whatever. There's just a video surveillance, cameras, witnesses. There's just, it's hard for you to leave the scene of a, of a dead body without the police eventually finding out who you are and that you were there. Folks, if you leave the scene of a legal self-defense shooting, that's going to make, the cops aren't going to know it's a legal self-defense shooting until they do the whole investigation, until they speak with you and find out what occurred to make you shoot that bad guy in self-defense. So when you leave a legal self-defense shooting, you are inadvertently turning that into a murder investigation instead of a justified homicide investigation. Now, of course, if you are still in danger at that scene and you need to leave that scene in order to save your life, now that's a whole different story. But again, if you are not forced to leave that scene and you do leave that self-defense shooting scene, you have turned that from a self-defense shooting investigation 
to a murder investigation. Once you leave the scene like that, it's going to make the police believe that you are hiding something, and it's going to make them less likely to believe you when you say that you legally defended yourself. And here is tip number six, which is never, after a self-defense shooting, never touch anything or tamper with evidence, if at all possible. If you are forced to shoot a bad guy in self-defense and he drops his gun, as gun owners, as people that regularly handle guns, we always have that tendency that when there's a loaded gun laying there, we always want to grab that gun and we want to uh, we want to unload it and we want to make it safe for when the other people arrive. So don't do that unless you absolutely have to. If you shoot a bad guy and he drops that gun and he's trying to crawl and reach it, that's a different story than knock the gun further away from him. Whatever it is that you got to do to keep him from reaching that gun a second time. But if it's a clean shoot, you shoot him, he drops that gun, nobody's trying to go for it or what have you, just leave that gun there. Don't unload it. Don't get your prints on that gun. Don't open up a whole bunch of, don't muddy the legal waters, as they say. Make sure that the evidence that you point out to the responding police, the evidence is left so that it corroborates your story. If you're at home and you sort of shoot a burglar in your house and your dirty underwear is on the floor or if your sex swing is hanging in the living room or whatever you freaks have out there, uh, you just want to be able to honestly say to the police that you did not do anything to change the integrity of that scene. That will be, what, again, what will help you the best, especially down the road if a greedy attorney is trying to sue you in civil court. So, so those are some pretty good tips, and uh, I thought I would share them with you. Uh, he is uh, 20 years law enforcement. It's ethical preparedness uh, and a great guy to follow. Up against the clock, quick break, it is... Gary on Guns. Hey, welcome. It is Gary on Guns. Glad to have you with us. Uh, if you just turned the radio on, uh, I've been uh, playing some of the videos, actually the audio for you, of people that I follow, experts that I think have such great advice uh, that you may want to follow as well. Uh, ethical Preparedness, you can find him on YouTube. He's law enforcement, 20 years uh, in law enforcement, and he's got some great advice. And uh, in a few minutes, we're going to uh, go back and uh, play another piece of, uh, of his uh, uh, podcast. Uh, four startling reasons why you need to go to the hospital after a self-defense shooting. There's good logic behind this. Uh, and, this uh, and, and, and this is something that uh, you'll probably want to hear. We'll do that in, uh, in a few minutes. In the meantime, we talked about, uh, and, and you'll have to go back and uh, get the podcast on this or something, but we did talk about what to do if you're in your car and there's a crowd pounding on the car surrounding you. What's the right way to get out? And what's, you know, what do you have to do? Uh, we talked about the pistol brace rule being rejected by the courts. Uh, we've talked about things that six things that you have to do or should do that uh, will protect you after you've had to shoot somebody. Uh, Brian Hansen, who is my producer, was uh, chatting with me during the break uh, about these uh, people who go out and block the streets, the very first segment of the program. Uh, and he also was uh, commenting on how when you, uh, you're you involved in a shooting, the bad guy uh, gets shot and the prosecutors go after the, the person protecting themselves. And I think, Brian, the answer to that, uh, that question about uh, why the prosecutors go after you there's a concern that you will use self-defense as an excuse
to just kill somebody you want to you want to kill. Well, that could happen some of the time, but generally, when somebody breaks in your house, it's not the homeowner's fault. I mean, that should be, I mean, yeah, but they, obvious but, to but a lot of people. To, but they have to inspect and and make sure that that uh, I you didn't it. let them in and that they weren't friends of yours and you had an argument and you blew them away. Yeah, but I mean, there are times when it's like, come on, use common sense once in a while. Sometimes prosecutors just want a conviction to send a message and it's just it's just wrong you know yeah, I, I can recall just in the news a couple of days ago where uh, somebody was in a subway station and being uh, threatened by a person with a gun and an innocent bystander stepped up to the place and fired his weapon I'm not saying this is a, a good thing to do is just fire a weapon randomly but he did fire and the bad guy f- fleed and but, he broke. Now he's being charged. This is just silly. Well, there are rules for when you uh, draw your firearm. There, and and you've got to make up your own mind. Um, one of the things that um, my wife and I talked about when we were getting our concealed carry permits uh, many years ago, Tim Oliver over at LearnToCarry.com did such a terrific job, and he said, "Understand in your mind under what circumstances you're willing." to draw your firearm. Drill that into your brain. Know exactly under what circumstances. And I remember Gwen and I sitting in the car talking it over so that we had you know, done exactly what Tim suggested. One of the things that uh, most concealed carry permit holders uh, will do in the event that uh, there's someone with an act, you know, an active shooter or whatever, They'll try to get out of there. They'll try not to have to shoot. Most of us don't ever want to shoot. But if you do, there are rules. You've got to know your target, what's beyond. Uh, You've got to, you know, can you safely discharge? Like, for instance, firing a warning shot, terrible idea. Uh, Know in advance that you're not going to ever fire a warning shot because it's just going to get you in trouble. Uh, So, there, I mean, there are just times and rules, and they have to make sure that you're not violating them and hiding behind self-defense. If the bad guy that's trying to rob you or assault you starts running away, you've got to decide, is he running away because he, he's afraid of you now? Is he running away to find cover so he can shoot at you? You know, it, 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 it's, it's really dangerous to carry a concealed carry, uh, to conceal carry. Take some classes no matter where you're at. That's my best advice. Gary on guns.